right, well, good afternoon, everyone. This is normally the part of service where I would welcome you, uh, but since you are all watching this at home or in your cars or at the park, uh, I guess you're welcoming me. Uh, so it's, uh, it's my pleasure to share with you during this ser 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 season of remote worship uh, for our congregation. And to start off, I'm going to continue the, the, the uh, tradition of offering an opportunity for our young people to show off what they have learned. So last week, if you joined us, Sister Maria Lawrence shared a message about justice and hosted a dialogue with Superintendent Christine Elo. Now, I have a question. And the first young person, 17 and younger, to send the correct answer to families at ptspice.org will win a prize. So are you ready? Sister Maria shared a passage from John chapter 4 about the Samaritan woman. In this passage, what did Jesus say he could give to the Samaritan woman at the well? Again, what did Jesus say he could give to the Samaritan woman at the well? Send in your answer to families at ptspice.org now uh, in order to have your opportunity to win. So today's scripture uh, comes from the book of Deuteronomy starting in chapter 4 uh, in verse 6. Now, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, and it recounts the end of the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the desert just before they cross into the Promised Land. If anybody out there feels like you have spent the last 40 years wandering in the desert and you are ready to enter the Promised Land, give me an amen in the chat. The name Deuteronomy is Greek, and it literally means repeating the law. And the book consists of a series of long speeches where Moses, you guessed it, repeats the law. He spends hours reminding the Israelites what God has brought them through, what God has promised, and what they have promised in return. But he does this because he is about to die. He is not going with them into the promised land, and he wants to make sure that they remember what they are supposed to do when they get there. And so in chapter 5, he recounts the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 6, starting in verse 4, he continues. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, this is a very famous passage of Scripture. In the Jewish faith, verse 4 is the beginning of a prayer that is known as the Shema, a prayer that is somewhat equivalent to the Lord's Prayer in Christianity. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, of course, this passage is also familiar because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he referred back to the Shema. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, when I hear that commandment from Jesus, I usually focus on the second part. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But 
Jesus teaches that the hearing and the loving are linked. Together they form the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because the reality is that you can't love the Lord your God with all your heart unless you first hear that the Lord is one. One love. One love. That is the title of my message uh, this afternoon. Uh, That's right, we're getting a little Bob Marley in church today. But that's what I want us to talk about this morning. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Because there's a lot wrapped up in that tiny word, one. When we say that God is one, we can hear at least four different things. Because God is one in quantity. He is one in unity. He is one in priority, and he is one in integrity. And that's what I want us to talk about, those four things. So hear, O Israel, the Lord, hear, O PT, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one in quantity, he is one in unity, he is one in priority, and he is one in integrity. So to begin, God is one in quantity. This is perhaps the simplest use of the word one. It is a number. If we say God is one, it means God is not two or three or 12 or 42. He is one. If we are counting up the number of gods that we serve and we have to use more than a single finger, we have made a mistake. Now, I know that some of you out there are highly educated and so you need this to be complicated. So I'll say it this way. If you take the number of gods and you square it, and you multiply that number by itself, and then take its inverse, and then divide by the cube root of the number of gods, you are still going to get one. That's right, we're doing some high-level math up in here. Now, in this sense, the oneness of God was actually one of the first things God revealed to Moses about himself. When Moses asked God what his name was, God told him Yahweh a Hebrew phrase that means I am. God used the first person singular to name himself. He didn't name himself we are or they are or these are. No, he used I am because God is a person and God is one. Because there is one Lord. There is no other. No God before him, no God beside him, nobody like him. He is the only Lord, and he alone is worthy. He alone is God. If there is anyone here to encounter the one true God this afternoon, I want you to give him some praise, because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, If we were here in church together, that might need a little bit of a praise break. But since we are online, I'm going to move on. So, God is one in quantity. But those of you who have read ahead will know that later on in the Bible, Jesus is also revealed to be God. So, doesn't that mean that God isn't one anymore? Now he's two? you know, Yahweh and Jesus. And actually, of course, we are Pentecostals, so we cannot forget about the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that mean that God is now three? Well, 
Jesus himself addressed this question when he was asked by the high priests plainly if he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he responded, I and the Father are one. Jesus didn't claim to be another God. Rather, he claimed to be God because he was part of the oneness, the unity of God. Indeed, this special unity is part of what defines God. So unity is the state of being joined or united, and that means that Yahweh can be God, and Jesus can be God, and Holy Spirit can, Holy Spirit can be God because they are all one in unity. And that is the second sense in which God is one. He is one in unity. Now, this unity is part of God's nature. God is unity. Just as we can say that God is love, we can say that God is unity. Indeed, early Christians coined a term for this strange three equals one unity, this three unity or tri-unity or trinity. The trinity, the idea that God is one God but three persons, expresses a deep understanding of how God is one. But now there isn't anything in the created order that is quite like the Trinity, but we can get an idea. And to get that idea, I have a small demonstration. So, uh, I want us to consider this flashlight. So, the light from the flashlight has a form of unity, a form of oneness. It comes from one source, very bright, so I'll try not to shine it directly into a camera here. You won't be able to see me. There we go. All right, I'll shine it over here. I'll shine it this way. There we go. It comes from one source. It goes at one speed, the speed of light, uh, and uh, it can illuminate one area, and for now I'll make that this area so that I don't blind anyone in the audience. So I did, I did plan to do this when there, were, when there was no very few people in the congregation to reduce the risk of blinding people with the flashlight. So, uh, so the light, the light has a form of oneness, but if I take this light and I pass it through a prism, and I get the prism at just the right angle, we can see, oh, let me get the angle just right, there we go, we can see that though there is one light, we might be able to see, yes, though there is one light, it is composed of many colors, many colors acting together in unity. And just as there is one light and many colors, so there is one God and three persons. He, ha he has unity without uniformity. He has diversity without division because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is important because we are, we, are we are invited to share in this unity, this oneness with God. If you are out there and you feel like you could use a little bit more unity in your life today, can you give me an amen in the chat? Because too often we live lives of distraction, of division, of separation, of disunity. And when we are in that situation, we need to hear that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that God, the one God, he has the power to create unity in the manyness of our lives. And to see that, we need to look no further than the passage we just read. It opens with, hear, O Israel. 
Moses is addressing not one person, but a community, the entire nation of Israel. And he exhorts that community, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then throughout the rest of the message, Israel is still the implied subject. Every you and every your refers back to the community. And these words that I command you, O Israel, today shall be on your heart. You, O community, shall teach them to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You, O brothers and sisters, shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets to your eyes. You, Israel, shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All of these are ways that the community participates in the unity of God, teaching talking, displaying it for others to see, because you can't have unity with just one person. Unity requires at least two people joining together, and the Bible teaches us that God's unity is the substance of true community. He is the thing that holds people from different backgrounds together. He is the bridge. You cannot have true unity without God, because God is unity. And unfortunately, right now, we are not doing so well at expressing unity in America. For over 400 years, our country has been struggling with the disease of racism. And I am proud of what our church is doing to fight for justice, from Bishop Bryan's leadership to the conversations with Commissioner Bard and Superintendent Elo, because at its core, racism is about disunity. If there is one reason that the enemy wants racism to succeed, it is because wherever racism takes hold in a community, that community ceases to be able to express the unity of God. And on top of the disease of racism, over the past seven months, we've been struggling under the weight of another disease, COVID-19. And make no mistake, in addition to being a disease of the respiratory system, COVID-19 is also a disease of disunity. Because of social distancing and quarantines and shelter in place, so many of the ways that we normally connect with our friends, our families, our coworkers, and our neighbors, those tools of connection have been lost. No more meeting up for coffee or throwing parties or going to concerts together. We have a profound feeling of disunity. And in the midst of that, there are those who will spread fear. Fear of COVID-19, fear of Donald Trump, fear of protesters, fear of police, fear of immigrants, fear. Some people do this because they know that fear is a great way to get your attention. Some people do this because they know that fear is a way that they can control you. But let me remind you that we do not serve a God of fear. Our God is not a God of fear because fear does not unify. Fear divides. Only love unifies. It says it right there in the passage, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If we follow that, we will not be known by our fear. We will be known by our love. 
a love of God that unifies us, that brings us together. Come on now. Some of you need to tell the devil that while the tools of unity might look a little bit different right now, our God, I said, our God, who is the substance of community, that God has not changed. He took care of us before and he's going to take care of us now. He was a good God then and he is a good God now. He was worthy then, he's worthy now, and he's still going to be worthy when all of this is passed. Because if there is one good thing that has come out of this pandemic, it is that we are finally worshiping God the way the scripture taught us to do. As it says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Note that none of those images had anything to do with coming to church. Loving God with all your heart and mind and strength is about letting the unity of God pervade all aspects of your life, your home, your family, the places you go, different hours of the day. The fact that we all can't all just come to church on Sunday morning is forcing us to do just that. We have family meetups, we have morning prayer, we have midnight prayer, we have social justice prayer. And of course, you are all listening to this sermon at home. You may not be writing the word of God on your doorpost, but you're certainly watching it on your televisions. And I know that some of you live in small apartments. And that means that if you are watching this, your roommates are watching it too, whether they want to or not. And if that is you watching this against your will, I just want to say, hello, roommate. Welcome. It is great to have you here. And so in many ways, I see that during this time of disunity, his church, his temple, his tabernacle is getting bigger. It has spread into our homes and our daily rhythms. And I find that very exciting because when the unity of God pervades our community, something special can happen. And to understand why, I just want to return to this flashlight. I won't shine it at the camera this time. Uh, uh, but the Spirit of God is like the light from this flashlight. It has unity. It can shine over all of creation and not lose that unity. But when we as people come together and express that unity, we act like a lens. Now, a lens doesn't make the light any brighter, but the lens can sure enough bring the light into focus. And likewise, when we worship God in our home, in our place of work, with our children at different times of the day, and when others see that we as believers have a unity that cannot be hindered by disease, that cannot be inhibited by distance, that cannot be divided by racism, we may not be making the unity of God any brighter, but we're sure enough bringing it into focus where we are. See, see, now I know this can be hard, but we have the power to light up the dark corners of our communities. And the way that we do that is by expressing the unity of God, each of us in our own place, but illuminated by the same source. Amen. And so God is one in quantity, 
He is one in unity. And the third point, God is one in priority. When we say the Lord is one, it means God comes first. Again, this is one of the obvious uses of the word one. As a number, it is the first number. Just as one comes before every other number, God comes before all else. He is greater. He is more important. He has priority. Indeed, if Moses had been at a pep rally, he could have led the Israelites in a cheer saying, Who's number one? God's number one. Who's number one? See, I got some of you to yell at your TV screens there. I know it. I got you. That idea, though, is echoed in a number of other places in Scripture. The first commandment, after all, is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, God comes first. And Bishop shared the scripture from Matthew that when Jesus told his fathers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Again, God, his kingdom, and his righteousness are first in priority. It is the nature of God that he is one in priority. He is the one thing. And all the scriptures teach us that when our priorities align with the truth, when we make our priority, when our priority is making him the priority, then things go well for us. And let me tell you that there is nothing like a crisis to show you what your real priorities are. Mm. Some of y'all are getting nervous right now. Because when the recent crises hit, how many of you turned to God first? How many of you turned to God before you turned to Facebook or Twitter or Netflix or Disney Plus or Zoom or NBA 2K? How many of you turned to God before you turned to medical professionals? How many of you turned to God before you turned to books or exercise classes or yoga? And if you are in the chat saying, oh, I've turned to God first, let me remind you that while the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me, the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness. Can I get a witness? And I also want to remind you of one of the benefits of online church, and that is ain't nobody looking at you. There is no need to front. You could be in your pajamas on the couch eating bonbons right now, and ain't nobody going to know. And I know somebody out there is like, where did he put that camera? How did he know I had those bonbons? No camera. I was just guessing. But can we be real for like a second? Because we can blame circumstances for our behavior, but crises usually don't make us worse people. More often, they just reveal to us the kind of people that we were all along. And the reality is that most of us do make God a priority in our lives, but we have lots of priorities. And can we really say that God is our first priority? Meh. And so when crisis hits, we turn to a whole variety of things before we turn to God. And I have a simple question for you this morning. How is that working out for you? Because it has never worked out well for me. And you know, a lot of the things that we turn to are good things, but they are not the one thing. You can get all the medical advice you want, but you are never going to know peace if you have not first sought God. You can meet with all the online networks you want, but unless you first meet Jesus, 
they are not going to lead you out of the dark place. The best they can do is lead you from one dark place into a different dark place. The passage teaches us exactly what we need to do to place God first. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When we love God with our whole heart, we are reminded that he is the one who can lead us out of the valley of the shadow of death. When we love him with our whole mind, we are reminded that he is the one who can keep us in perfect peace. When we love him with all our might, we are reminded that we do not need our own strength to get us out because the battle belongs to the Lord. Placing God first is the only way to put everything else in its proper perspective. And so, God is one in quantity, one in unity, and one in priority. Finally, hear, O PT, the Lord our God, the Lord is one in integrity. Integrity literally means being whole. The Lord our God is complete, perfect, flawless. He cannot be broken or divided or violated because he is whole. He has integrity. And this is a meaning of the word one because one is the first positive whole number. And so when we say the Lord is one, we are also saying that he is integrity. He is wholeness. And integrity fundamentally links God's oneness to loving God. The passage speaks of loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Loving him, in short, with your whole self. The imagery reinforces this saying, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. All the imagery is about visually showing that you love God with your whole self, every part of you. Just as God, as God is a God of integrity, the passage exhorts the Israelites to be a people of integrity. Indeed, this context echoes an important second meaning of the word integrity. It can also mean morally upright. A person of integrity is a whole person, and a whole person is someone who can do the right thing. Well, the Israelites tried to be people of integrity. They tried to love God with their whole heart. They tried, and they failed. Over and over and over again, they failed. They loved other gods, other things. They broke their promises. They fought with each other. They forgot God. And each time, God forgave them and invited them back, only to have them fail again. Try as they might, generation after generation, the Israelites couldn't manage to love God with their whole hearts. They could not be people of integrity. And it is the same with us. We aim to be people of integrity, like this glass here. We aim, we aim to be whole. We try to love God with our whole hearts, and we enter into life, and along comes racism, and coronavirus, and loneliness, Along comes temptation, bitterness, anger, hate, broken promises. 
And in the end, instead of being whole, we end up broken. But brothers and sisters, I have good news for you today because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when you feel broken, when you are shattered, he can make you whole. Come on now. Someone needs to give God a hallelujah on that. If you have ever been so broken, so busted up that you know it took God to put you back together again, I want to see some raised hands in the chat. Because the Lord, our God, the Lord is integrity. He is wholeness and he specializes in lost causes. Amen. And this is more than just words. The passage talks about putting these words on your heart and binding them to your hands and your head. But sometimes those words are not enough to hold us together. And so God sent Jesus, the Word made flesh, so that by binding Jesus to our heart, by giving Him our hands, by inviting Him into our minds, we might be made whole. Jesus said it Himself, praying over His disciples, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you loved them even as you loved me. Jesus came so that you might be whole, so that you might be a person of integrity, just as the Father is integrity. It doesn't matter what you have done or what has happened to you in this life, because Jesus came so that you might have a new life, that you might be born again, perfect, flawless, and whole. And you can start that new life right now, today. Simply All you need to do is invite Jesus into your heart. Simply tell God, Lord, I am broken, but I believe in Jesus. Come into my heart and make me whole. It's a simple prayer. You can pray it right now, wherever you are. You don't even need to say it out loud. God knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He loves you. And so if you long to be made whole, I encourage you right now, just say that prayer, accepting Jesus as the one thing in your life. And so if you would, everyone who is listening, please just bow your heads with me uh, as I lead that simple prayer. God, I am broken, but I know that even though I did not deserve it, Jesus died for me. He died so that I might be made whole, that I might become your child. Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my mind. Guide my hands and my feet. Make me whole. Make me a child of God. 
thank you, Father, that, that even though I didn't deserve it, you loved me so much that you sent your son to die for me. Thank you that I can know that right now, right now, I am your child. Thank you. Hallelujah and amen. And if you prayed that prayer with me just now and accepted Christ for the first time, we would love to support you as you begin your new life with him. And so if you prayed that prayer, we invite you to email us at mail at ptspice.org. We aren't trying to get your money or get you on our mailing list. We just want to welcome you into our community of believers. So drop us a line. And to, to all of you who are watching, hear, oh listeners, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Have a blessed day and a blessed week. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this service was a blessing. We want you to know that we are here for you. If you desire us to pray with you, please go to ptspice.org forward slash pray for me, where you can join our post-service prayer room or submit a written prayer request. 